0: Is there any gain in our toil? Is there meaning to life? The preacher's meditations in Ecclesiastes call us to consider life under the sun, existence without a loving benevolent God over it all. Along the way, this wisdom book calls the weary and the skeptical to deal with the inevitability of death and in so doing, discover how is there any gain in You're listening to a podcast of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. We exist to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people whole in Him. All right, let's turn to Ecclesiastes 5 together. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes 5, the first seven verses. Uh, I want to remind you to join us together tonight at 4 o'clock, kind of I guess late afternoon. A prayer meeting here from 4 till 5. Uh, we'll join together. You're praying. I trust that you're regularly praying already with your families and your own personal time with the Lord. Um, But this is an opportunity to come together with brothers and sisters to to go before the throne of grace together. Now, I don't want it to be a passing comment either, all right? So I'm I'm just going to to hang out with it for a moment, not as you're just like going to Ecclesiastes 5. I want us to remember that this is something that he has called us to, to pray together, to call on him to be the one that answers. So I want you to seriously consider interrupting whatever Sunday afternoon traditions you have, 3.30. They putting your shoes on, They putting some pants on, getting in the car, coming to the building for an hour and praying with God's people. We would grow in holiness and as we pray for other situations that God has given to us to pray for, that we would do so in sincerity. So uh, I hope that you will consider joining with us as we go before God and ask for grace. All right, let's read uh, Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7 together and then we'll pray. This is God's word. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business, and the fool's voice with many words. When you vow vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools Father, we thank you for your grace in Jesus Christ. You have given us your word, and we ask that we would listen. Would you give us hearts that are receptive and ready to obey? God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would change us so that we might obey and love, glorify you, and find true joy in all that you've called us to. Lord, you are great and gracious. And we ask that you'd satisfy with your steadfast love this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to begin our time by reading three passages from the Old Testament. All these passages are going to speak towards what we're going to talk about in this passage, in these seven verses at the beginning of Ecclesiastes 5. Now, before I do that, I'm going to do something that I normally don't do. I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. I'm going to tell you what this morning's all about right now, right up front, Usually, I kind of like to follow the passage along and allow it to open it up and get us to a place where it reveals itself. I want you to take this time and think about what it's calling us to right from the beginning. And as we work through the passage, you're going to see it unfold the whole time. So here we go. Here is the command that you're going to see. This is, this is let the cat out of the bag. Here we go. Worship, this is what we're supposed to do worship God with real awe and reverence. Going through the motions, offering a lot of good religious talk and Christian stuff that we say, does not impress God. He knows. He knows what's going on in here, what's going on in here. So the more words that we say to him somehow in some sort of religious nature doesn't impress him. He knows. So he calls us to worship God in fear and reverence. Now, what I'm saying here, uh, you know, we understand that this is not just something that is uh, passing by, but this is something that we recognize has been going on forever. Because of this, it's going to be relevant for how you and I start to see this next passage. So I want you to think about that as we go into these three passages. Worship God in real awe and reverence. Going through these motions, these religious rituals or Christian things, or even a lot of talk about God doesn't impress him. So with that being said, let me take you through three spots. First one is Psalm 51. It's David. He says this, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. So he's worshiping. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Now, you and I understand that the whole Old Testament shows us that sacrifice is right to give, it, and and it's built around this understanding that because of our sin, there must be sacrifice and these gifts to God. But here, David's making it very clear. It's not the sacrifice alone by itself, or the money, or the Christian talk that is pleasing to God. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now listen to 1 Samuel 15. Samuel is speaking to Saul. I'll give you a little bit of a synopsis, but at the beginning is: Saul's coming back and telling Samuel that he didn't do anything wrong. This is what he says. 1 Samuel 15, 20-22. through 22. And Saul said to Samuel, "'I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek. I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction.'" But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Samuel responds. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Declaring the same thing. Now listen to the the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 66, 1-4 says this, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you will build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who uh, breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Now, as we open up Ecclesiastes 5, this is what we're going to be dealing with. I know this is heavy. This is right for us, though. He's giving us wisdom literature. Let me kind of pull back and situate us again from where we've been. In chapters 3 and 4, we saw how we rightly should situate ourselves before the sovereign God of all creation. And last week in chapter four, we saw how to live in a miserable world was to love our neighbor, to obey his law. But after a conversation like that one, me and you kind of think we're doing okay because, well, look at us. Here we sit. We obviously fear God. We, we go to church. We call ourselves Christians. We are those who would name the name of God and, and pray and do all sorts of Christian things. But because that's true, There may be a tendency for those of us who practice religion, who call ourselves Christian, who worship each Sunday by coming to church, there may be a tendency for us to think that since we attend church, we are on the right side of this wisdom equation. We're obviously doing the right thing. But here in chapter 5, Kohelet is going to help us. He's the caller. He's the one that's teaching. the, The author here, Kohelet, is going to teach us that we must truly fear God must worship him according to his transcendent nature. Now, that's just a big word. All I'm trying to say is there's imminent nature, the transcendent nature of God. Imminent, he is here with us. Transcendent, God is in heaven, high above us. He is both of these things. But what Kohelet brings up is the fact that the way that we interact with God must take into account that God is transcendent, is far above us. We realize that as he continues to talk. What I mean, though, here is that this idea of of, that God is holy and other and sits on his throne will affect the way that we worship him if we're truly seeing him for who he is. It will be no surprise to you that the way that we're going to talk about this passage all sits on the foundation that's found in uh, Proverbs 9. Proverbs 9.10, you know this verse already. right? Uh, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? wisdom let's not, let's go back to the first part the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy one is insight this is where true wisdom begins and therefore true worship begins as well what i want to do is walk through our passage here and i want you to see these commands and how they show us to come rightly before god as true worshipers not people that are playing at church Not people that are willing to fill up the words of Christianity and do all these things and hope that God's cool with that. He calls us in this passage to guard our steps when we come to the house of God. He calls us to not be rash with our mouth or hasty to speak many words before God. He calls us to not let our mouth lead us into sin. We see these four different commands in verses 1, 2, 4, and 6. But really there's three major ideas that we're going to point out here. In verse one, he tells Israel to guard their steps when they go to the house of God. If you look at verse one, you'll see that. It's a, it's a pretty simple concept to understand. He's talking about temple worship. He's talking about when people would come to sacrifice, approach God. And he's saying that when someone should do this, this place of sacrifice and worship for Yahweh, he tells them that they should take care as they approach worshiping God. It is not something that is light. This is, this is a warning, He's saying, hey, this is not like dropping on a friend to have coffee. This is not like going to the DMV and standing in line and getting your stuff done. It's not like going to shop at the store. It's not like getting something done on your list. You are going into the presence of the Almighty God. So take warning and don't treat it routinely as though it's something small that I do every day. He's saying when you approach God, take heed. Guard your steps. Understand with reverence and awe who you are dealing with. He then gives them this little proverb. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. He says that listening is better than sacrifice. I mean, he's highlighting the need to hear from God, not to bring our religious action to him. Now, if you remember the great Shema, We talk about this a lot when we talk about instructing our children, right? In Deuteronomy 6, he says this in the great Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you shall today be on your heart. Now, when we think of these verses, we rightly think, I know what the center of this is, to love God with my heart, soul, and mind. And that's correct. But don't skip the first verse. Did you see what he says? Do you remember what I said here? He says, he doesn't say, speak, O Israel. He doesn't say, do this, O Israel. He says, hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Instead of rushing forward into what they thought God wanted, Israel was called to listen, to hear God speak before they were to do anything. Now, this may seem like a small detail to us, but it's actually the whole point of what he's bringing out here. This is not a small thing. Yeah, yeah, I know, we're supposed to listen to God, but like, we want to be people of action. We want to respond the right way and get out and do something. And that's a, by the way, that's a right Christian response because James talks to us about not being people that say that we believe or have faith and then don't do anything about it. But in this passage, he is sure to, he's helping us understand that we need to make sure that our doing or our action or our speaking is a response. Now, did you get that? Our acting, our speaking, our doing should be a response. A response to what? What do you mean? Well, it should not be original with me and you. Like we get to make up what worship or fearing God should look like. The first thing that he calls us to do is look to him, to hear from God himself. Our praise to God, our acts of worship, our service must be an outflow or a response from God. How then do you approach God on a Sunday morning? or When you go to obey him or when he calls you in regular worship, what's your response to him? And you're singing, maybe your, your words are the, the first thing like, that you feel like, okay, I've, I've got to come to worship and do this and I've got to do this and I've got to do this. Or is our posture one that is ready to receive from God, hear who he is, and respond both in gratitude and obedience? I'm not saying that words are bad. I'm just saying that this passage calls us to be very careful as we approach God. When we talk about coming to church service, we're not talking about how we can come to serve God. A church service is one in which he serves us. This is the idea here. We need to realize that it's possible for us to sin in our worship. I put a quote on that because that would not be true worship. We might actually be worshiping the wrong thing if we are not worshiping according to what he has called us to, with a wrong idea of who God is. I mean, that's the point that he brings out here. This idea that we could be not only worshiping wrongly, but we could actually be, as he says, they don't know they are doing evil there's a way then that you and I can worship God that God sees actually as doing evil. So when it comes to worshiping him, we must approach him with humility, with carefulness, with thoughtfulness, and never in some sort of mindless routine way where I check the box, oh yeah, I've got to go do this, and then I've got to go to church, and then I've got to have lunch, and then I've got to do this in the afternoon. We are approaching God's house. We are approaching him and his presence he goes on in verse 2, he expands this idea. He says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Now, it might be tempting, because it's a, it's, a, it's a good way to connect, it might be tempting for us to run to passages like James 1.19, right? That tell us to be uh, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That's really good, and that's that's certainly a good Christian teaching, but it's not what Kohelet is talking about. He is talking about our approach to God. In this idea here, he brings up this idea of God's transcendence. He literally says that God is in heaven, and we are on earth. Now, why would he do that when he's he's talking about this? When we have the normal thought about speech, it's got a lot of other things connected, but all of a sudden he brings this idea that God is in heaven, and we're on earth. Well, if we're honest with ourselves, there's a tendency for all of us to think that we know what God wants us to do. I mean, you've probably had this happen if people find out you're a Christian, if they find out I'm a pastor, they're like, oh yeah, sorry for saying those things I said back there, because they know that they shouldn't be saying those things according to their thoughts about what God must expect of them, as though if they say it to a pastor, then God hears it. But my my point is like, we all think we somewhat know what God wants us to act like. The problem is, sometimes we act on those thoughts instead of God's thoughts. He tells us how to worship Him. He tells us who He is. He does not say, go decide what you want to do about worshiping me. No, 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 no. It's wicked. We're called to know Him for who He is and respond to Him as ones who quickly listen to His Word. As we respond to His goodness. The warning here is that we don't rush into talking about or doing Christian stuff without recognizing our place in the universe. Think about this this whole idea of God is in heaven and we're on earth. We shouldn't rush into doing Christian stuff without recognizing our place as created things. We're, We're creatures made by an almighty transcendent creator. We just went to the Creation Museum, went to the planetarium there, and one of the quick shows they, that they did, it's, it's centered on creation and, and, and God's goodness, but they show you earth within the solar system. And so the solar system within the galaxy. And they show the galaxy amongst all these other galaxies. And you realize how small we are. And you realize that God spoke and there was light. That he spoke and these things came into existence. We are not messing with some sort of idol that we have to come up with a way that somehow he made all of this well he tells us exactly who he is do you see then we should not speak foolishly as though we know as though somehow we are equal with our creator no we're creatures remember that God is in heaven he's God and we are on earth we're created so don't like don't act like you know it all Instead, he says when we come to worship that we ought to listen. Quahel is simply saying that our mouth, they sure do expose a lot of what's going on in our hearts. Now, we know that because Jesus already told us this. Jesus says in Matthew 15, 18, What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Verse 2 then calls us to worship God as a transcendent God of the universe and be careful to speak only when we understand who we are before him. When you realize that he is in heaven and we are on earth, you realize that he is not the God that you have inside your head. Do you understand? He's saying it's not the one that you make in your heart or your head or your thoughts about who God is. In other words, he's not the God of your shaping or forming. Let's, let's turn that on its head. Actually, you and I are the ones who were shaped and formed by him in our mother's wombs. This is the one who dwells in heaven and we on earth. So brothers and sisters, do you worship as a creature or more as, in a sense, like a partner? Like we, we, we know what God wants us to do, so we'll kind of like come alongside and help him do that. He calls us to see ourselves properly before him as creatures, those that worship through a proper fear of God and awe and reverence. What does your speech say about how you understand God and yourself? And some of you may be saying, okay, Chris, I get it. Yeah, I mean, is this? are we just supposed to like be quiet then coming into service and at all times just kind of walk around without saying words? I mean, that seems like one of the things here. Well, no, I'm not necessarily saying that. But I do think that it's right for us to regularly quiet our hearts before God. What I mean by that is this, recognizing that He is God in heaven and that we are here on earth and that our best thing that we could ever get or do is to receive from Him. This is an amazing part too. I'll just put this out there. Do you realize that God gets glory and honor through you listening and believing this morning? Do you realize that this is worship? You're like, I'm I'm just receiving. Exactly. By God's grace, if you're receiving and saying, I need to repent. This is sin. I'm wrong. Lord, I want to follow you. I love you. I'm sorry that I am reacting this way. I want to obey and to receive this word. Do you realize that God is working and that he receives honor and you worship through a, a repentant heart? It's a beautiful thing that God does in us. And so as we come, he serves us. It's uh, it's right for us to understand that I'm preaching the truth. My prayer regularly is that I would get out of the way so that the word would change us together, so that he would constantly work in us and serve us with this good meal. That's what we're here for, wanting. So what can you do? There's two things, and you already know them. One is you can pray regularly genuinely, Lord, would you reveal yourself to me? Would you show me who you are? Would I not make of you something and then worship it in my own way? But would I see you for who you say you are in your word and change me so that I might fear you properly? The other way is connected with that. How do you know what God's like? How do you think he's gonna teach you about himself? Yeah, you all know. It's right here. Guys, this is like the, the, the Christianity 101. Read your Bible. It's not magic. It reveals who God is, it shows us who He is. And by His Spirit's power working in us, we believe the truth. We repent of our sins. We trust Him. We find joy in obedience and love from who our God is. And so by prayer and reading His Word, simple means of grace. He continually shows us who we are so that you and I can respond and worship and fear him properly. So don't be rash with your mouth. Let your words be few as creatures. Now in verse 3, he's going to give us a brief, punchy synopsis that helps us see how things really are here. If you look at verse 3, he says, For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. What I want you to do is listen for a moment. I'm going to read from three other translations. I think they do a better job than the ESV here. It's a very kind of a wooden translation. It's good, but I want you to listen to this because it's going to get the first part. The first part about this idea about dreams coming from much business. NIV says this, A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. And the Holman Christian Standard Bible says, For dreams result from much work and a fool's voice from many words. Or lastly, there's a more dynamic translation from the NLT. It says, too much activity gives you restless dreams. Too many words make you a fool. Now, these are helpful. What the author is doing is using an analogy for us. Just as dreams come from tireless work, or business, as he says here, so we can recognize a fool by way of them using many, many words. Now, I don't know how many of you can relate to this, uh, how, how often this has happened to you, but let's talk about dreams for a minute. I remember when I first started working at LifeNet Health, this was years back. I was still a seminary student in grad school, so I was learning Greek vocab. I was working on giant papers. I was reading thousands of pages. At the same time, I started a new job which is very intense. I was learning SOPs and learning how to clean and learn how to enter and leave a clean room and how to make sure I was doing the right procedures, all this stuff. While I was working with a brand new set of people, learning their names, and we're all gowned up from head to toe, all I could see was this much of people for like eight, 10 hours a day. All the while, all my coworkers, all they listened to was Hot 100.5. I mean, it was awful. All these things are swirling in my brain constantly. And I can remember, this is, this is true, I can remember that this produced both daydreams and dreams regularly for me. It was like just constantly bombarding me with all the stuff that I was doing. And I can remember I would dream of spec sheets and vocabulary cards and Hebrew and scraping tissue and terrible Katy Perry songs in the background. <laughs> I mean, this was all in my dreams, all this toil and business and stuff going on. Much business produced these dreams. They were empty and meaningless in one sense, I understand that, but they dominated me even when I was sleeping, my quiet moments. This is the first part of the analogy here. He says that just like much business produces these dreams, so many words reveals who is a fool. Now, you and I know what a fool are, so keep tracing that back and understand, one who does not fear God. So what's the point? Well, obviously, don't be a fool. We get that part. But here is, he's he's even pointing out the best way to start on that endeavor is to be very careful with the way that we speak and how much just flows out of us. As we go on, we'll see that he isn't simply saying that we should never speak. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that we should ever pray, he's not saying that we should ever do anything. No. Remember who Kohalit is, he's a smart, old, godly man telling us how foolish and sinful we can declare ourselves to be by leading with our mouths instead of our ears in worship. So Christian, do not multiply words before God. Come to him to receive. Be marked by listening. Now he goes on in verses 4, 5, and 6. This contains like two kind of t- commands here, but it's one big idea here. He says when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Now in ancient Israel, vows were often made to God in the temple, in a place of worship. Let me just read for you Deuteronomy 23. It says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. The idea here is actually pretty simple. These promises were made to God in hopes that he would grant a request. And if he did grant the request, a sacrifice or money or something would be given to God. We see this in 1 Samuel, from right at the very beginning. Hannah, let me just read 1 Samuel 1.11. She is making a vow to God. She was barren, if you remember this. She could not have children. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, you will in, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, But will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor razor shall touch his head. She's making this Nazarite vow with this child. If, If he will give her a child, then she will give that child back, wholly dedicated to the Lord. This was a very common feature in Israel's experience at the temple. It wasn't required, but it certainly was a part of worship to God. But our author here is trying to make sure that we understand how important it is that Israel treats God as a real, living, all-seeing, all-hearing, all-knowing God. He's the real deal. He's not some figment of your imagination. In a sense, he's saying, uh, you should either make no vows, or if you do, you should definitely pay them. Why? Because God is real. Verse 6 tells us, do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Now, what we have here is this instance of a messenger who's probably a temple priest. Comes to an Israelite to kind of collect on the promise, the sacrifice, or the money that was made. But instead of paying it, the person kind of responds like, oh, uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't really mean that uh, that way. Maybe you misunderstood what I was saying. and That wasn't... Quite what I was saying, that you're mistaken, or, you know, I mean, maybe it was me. I, we always misspeak sometimes, right, guys? The idea here is, no, God hears and knows everything that you say and everything that you think, for that matter. He understands, and it's not the, uh, the temple priest, the, uh, the, the messenger who has misunderstood. We must not trifle with God. I'd ask the question, who do we think he is, if we would treat him this way? Again, this is a problem of not understanding who God is. This kind of a person has listened to what God has said about himself, and instead, they've chosen to do what they want to do with that God. Perhaps they haven't even listened to who God said he was. So my question is, what about us? Uh, We don't make a lot of vows nowadays, like Israel did in the same way. So does this actually mean anything for us? Maybe this is something that we can just kind of push off. Well, Jesus talked about this. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, through 37. He doesn't only talk about it. He is going to escalate it for us. It's not just about vows anymore. It's going to be about the words that we speak. And you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely or vow, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn or vowed. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, he's not simply just doing away with all vows completely. He's certainly moving us past that, but he's actually heightening our speech and the importance of our integrity. That what we say means something. That how we respond to others should have weight. That we should fulfill what we have said we will do, or not do what we said we won't do. He is saying that our speech and our integrity should be intact. As though any promise that we would make is actually a promise before God. I mean, think about it. The way that we interact is a reflection of our God. To the world that is around us. So, are you truthful in your speech? Are there maybe shades of deception or hiding things or white lies that characterize the way that you speak in any way? As to your children, those around you, at work? Is your yay, yay, or that's the old English, yes, yes, or is your no, no? It reflects God's character. What, what about formal commitments that we have before God? Two really quickly. One is if you're married. You have made that a covenant of marriage before God. You have a responsibility before God. You've made vows to love this person according to the way that Christ loves his church. We understand that. The Bible is very explicit about this relationship. But do you understand that this, in your own marriage, those who are married here, that this is a representation that we must take seriously Those who look towards marriage, same thing, as we vow before God that we would rightly uphold what he calls us to, that we would be people that our yes is our yes and our no is no. How about church membership? Members, you have vowed to build one another up spiritually. Um, You have vowed to love one another, to confess sin to one another, to serve one another, to encourage one another, to look out for one another spiritually. Are you regularly doing this? Have you been true to your word that you said you would do for one another here? We have made that commitment before God. Have you done it? Now I'm going to go one step further. I'm going to go out and live here. I'm going to ask those who, uh, I want to encourage those who are not members in a gospel preaching church, whether it's here or somewhere else, I want to encourage you to consider what it means to be a Christian as part of the body of Christ. He tells us what this looks like. If you love Christ and are committed to his word, if you recognize who you are as a member of the whole body, you recognize that you are connected to other Christians. My question is, if you have committed yourself in a real way to real people through membership, not just the whole body of Christ, everywhere of all time, No, I'm talking about a real group that you have committed yourself to and said, yes, this is what it means for me to obey what Christ has called me to in these one another's. It's impossible, we know that, to do all the things that Christ has called us to to everyone in the entire world. We understand that. But it's also right for us to understand the group that God has given us to, for us to declare our faith, to say, I want to walk forward in an understanding way where I'd be held accountable to the gospel. So if you're a Christian but not a member of a gospel preaching church and you continue to come to Cornerstone, first I want you to hear we're glad you're here. We're so glad. But I want to also encourage you to join the body of Christ through baptism into church membership. And we'd ask that you'd make your faith known for the whole church to hear and respond and say, yes, this one is Christ. We understand that this is not of our own doing, but rather the church exercising the keys of the kingdom from Matthew 16 and 18. Now, our author finishes this little section with a final summary in verse seven. He says, when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Now, we've already talked about dreams a little bit, right? We understand that dreams sometimes reveal all this much business that is going on and that many words reveal that a person is a fool. At this point, Kohelet clarifies for us that many dreams and many words amount to hevel, amount to nothing. This word that our translation says is vanity, emptiness. It doesn't do us any good. And we understand from what we saw last week that two hands full of toil is a striving after wind. It's pointless to do. Here we are told that many words are nothing but a vapor. And so we're starting to come back all the way around. You see this? Lip service, empty Christian actions, going through the motions, does not please God. This is not true worship. And so he ends with this foundational Ecclesiastes statement, God is the one you must fear. Do you understand that we're not gonna be measured on our fear of God by one another? I mean, in, in church membership, we actually try to do as much as we can. That's the, the idea he's given to us to call one another accountable and love one another. But ultimately, I cannot peel back your soul and know if you love God with your heart, soul, and mind. So what I call you to do, us to do, is to fear God according to his word, who he truly is. What's at the center of your worship? Is it you? Or is it the fear of the Lord? Um, Is it awe and reverence for the real God who is in heaven, who sees all, who hears all, who knows the heart and isn't impressed by our acts of religiosity or our words of spirituality? If you trifle with God, repent. (laughs) Can I just say that? Repent, don't continue. Instead, approach him in humility. Do not continue to treat God as if he is something of your making, like an idol. He's the one who spoke light into existence. It was never there before. He made it. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He clothed the eternal son in flesh and put him to death on a cross for his glory and for our good. He's the God of redemption. And so I'd encourage you, do not trifle with God. Approach him in humility. Listen. Learn from him and worship him how he requires us to worship him. Now, the last thing I want to bring us around to is the thing that we've constantly talked about whenever we preach the Old Testament. This is not just an Old Testament sermon. Something amazing has happened, right, in, in the timeline. They, they, they hadn't seen the Messiah come. On this side, now we stand, though, looking back to Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the real Messiah came, and he's changed everything. So we don't go to the house of God in the same way. Just let you know, this cool place here, 2180, McComas Way, Suite 103, this is not the temple. Thank God for that. New Testament tells us that we are his temple. The body. We recognize, and he's actually aiming at something even further down the road. Revelation talks about the fact that God himself and the Lamb will be his temple. In him we find our true worship, and the true place of God's goodness with his people. In John 4, if remember, he talks to the woman at the well, and he tells her, it's not going to be on your mountain, it's not going to be on this mountain, but he says, those that worship the Father must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, I'm not going to take time to work all that, although that's a great sermon. What he is saying is that he's actually not in a place anymore, it's in a person, It's in Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. This is where worship is centered. That those of us who decide to worship God, to fear Him, only must do it properly through the Word, through God Himself incarnate, Jesus Christ. And so we recognize that we may not go to a temple and guard our steps to the temple, but actually we realize it's way bigger than that. It's all of our Christian worship. Romans 12, 1, right? He tells us, live out as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable or spiritual worship. We see it when we talk about uh, Hebrews 13, 15 through 16. He says this, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledges his name. So when we acknowledge God, when we praise him, do not neglect to do good. When we do good, when we obey, when we share what we have, he says, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So yes, we may not come in the doors of the temple and then this, these verses apply to us. Guys, it's, it's way bigger than that. It's when we recognize that all of life that we take seriously to worship and obey God in these acts, we must do so rightly in awe and reverence of God. This leads us then to consider two more passages and we don't. The Christian life now is spent rightly rejoicing under God through Jesus Christ, and he says it this way. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thus, let us offer. This is what we're supposed to do. Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. I can't make that up. That's Hebrews 12, 28, and 29. For our God is a consuming fire. It's the same God. Ecclesiastes God isn't different than the God of Hebrews. Same God here. So we must worship him in the same way that he calls us to, in true fear in awe and reverence. And then lastly, in Philippians two twelve, you know this passage too. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, as you've already obeyed, like this working out of your own salvation is not a works-based salvation. He's talking about as you obey, as you love, as you serve, as you praise, as you worship, how do you do so? With fear and trembling, awe and reverence before God. So as we go from here, this is not like something where we walk around like monks, constantly quiet and don't do anything. You recognize that this is an inward reality where we have understood who God is and we respond to him by wanting to receive from him, constantly shattering our old idols of who he is and instead being informed by what the word tells us who he is and rightly, therefore, worshiping him out of that. This will lead us to a place where our words are few and we love to hear God speak to his people. This God here is not to be trifled with. He's not a God of our imagination. Uh, He hears and sees and knows all things. Thus, let us work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Let us rightly be in awe of who God is and fear him according to his rules and his ways. God alone is the one we must fear. So I call us to do it. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your grace in giving us the word. Would you help us now to respond in obedience? There's just so many different ways this probably can go, but I think it's, for me, it's like just constantly in my heart to say, what kind of idolatrous idea of God do I have? May it be renewed by your word. May your people here see that what they have in their minds must be changed constantly by your word. Lord, I pray that you would give us a humility as we approach you, that we would seek to know you for who you are, that we would be still and know that you are God. I pray that we would not offer what we think are great religious sacrifices, but Lord, you give us hearts that are contrite and humble and ready to receive from you. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're not a part of a gospel-centered church in your city, we encourage you to find and belong to one. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit CBC Virginia.